0: I'm Charlie Melcher, founder and director of The Future of Storytelling. Welcome back to The FOSS Podcast. The best stories make you see the world in a new way. Today, I'd like to introduce you to a pair of storytellers who are changing their audience's worldviews through brilliant innovation in an unlikely form, Tabletop Games. Their studio is called Thorny Games. Catherine Himes, one half of the studio, holds a Master's in Linguistics from Stanford. Her partner, Hakan Ole, has a PhD in Mathematics from UCLA with a focus on cryptography. Between the two of them, they create mind-bending games that force players to use language in new ways and confront head-on how language shapes our reality. In a sense, Catherine and Hakan are more systems designers than storytellers creating the rules and backdrops for powerful group storytelling experiences that probe the roots of human psychology and communication. For their groundbreaking work in game design, Thorny Games has received awards and recognition from Indiecade, the Indie Game Awards, and the Any Awards, to name just a few. And as you'll learn later in this episode, they're now taking their storytelling and game design prowess outside the realm of entertainment, collaborating with major universities to build gamified experiences that promote recovery from debilitating psychological conditions, such as aphasia. It's my great pleasure to welcome Catherine and Hakan to the FOSS podcast. Catherine, Hakan, welcome to the FOSS podcast. I'm so delighted to have you here with me today.
1: We're so excited to be here. Thank you for having us.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for having us. So you are indie game designers. I want to start by asking you about games you played as children. Was there a special game that you developed just with your parents or your family? Like, did you, did you start making games as little kids with your folks?
1: I know that I did. There's a game. It was called Puppy. Um, It was a LARP. Uh, I was the puppy. uh, And uh, there was an elaborate birthday present opening ceremony that I would have my mother walk through in order to get me to take a bath. (laughs) And we would do it again and again. I would be the puppy. She would have her birthday. She would open the box. Routinely, this would be me in a hamper. Uh, and then eventually <laughs> I would woof like a little dog and end up in the bath.
2: To, to violate the canonical yes and uh, kind of like <laughs> rule. Mine was a little different. I actually, so even though I played a lot of games as a, as a child, I didn't get to, to really making any until I was an adult. And, you know, I know I, I think most of the time when you have like creator stories, they've been, they've been doing these things since they were like little, little inklings in their parents' eyes, but... It really—I didn't start until much later, um, and uh, yeah, it was just a different experience for me.
0: I asked because when I was thinking about this and thinking about how important games are in our lives as we develop as children, I thought of a game that my family developed, which I loved. It was called it, Catherine. It was very similar to yours. It was called Lump in the Bed, and. <laughs> on like weekend mornings my sister and I would lie as flat as we could underneath the covers in my parents' bed and my mom would pretend that she was making the bed and trying to flatten out the blanket and of course there'd be some lumps in the blanket that she would then have to like you know push and tickle and, and, and we would do our best to lay flat and not giggle to give away that we were there um, and then at some point there'd be a big reveal also like yours <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so from these um, home early influences, jump forward, (laughs) what made you all decide to start Thorny Games?
1: You know, it started first as players. Um, we found ourselves just being game players, um, and I think we both have kind of long history as players. We are life partners outside of being game designers, and on our very first date, we played a board game called Battlestar Galactica, which uh-huh. is a big one, big meaty game, um, and so that kind of started uh, like a shared connection between us uh, from the beginning of our uh, own connection, and I. I'd say what really was the, the instigating point, the impetus, was finding a community. We, uh, we went to a, one of the biggest, or maybe the biggest, game convention um, for tabletop games called Gen Con in Indianapolis. And there, Gen Con is sort of a strange convention in that it's like a music convention of all different kinds of, of musics or games. Uh, and within that like broad broad sphere, we found an amazing little corner um, called Indie Games on Demand where there was this um, movement of storytellers that were really about the indie story gaming community. We fell in love very quickly. And that then became um, the impetus to start playing games like this and and slowly making them.
2: You know, we had played stuff like Dungeons & Dragons, where it was kind of a role-playing type game, but that was following a very set formula and one that, you know, you kind of dealt with because you got to tell a story, but like... I'm not that excited about going into a dungeon and killing a bunch of stuff, like given the option, that's not how I'm going to spend my weekend. You know, we always wanted to create something. And then we found that by bringing a lot of our own history and voices into the process, we're able to make something that, you know, resonated with some amount of folks.
0: Hmm. Well, I'm seeing a little bit of a pattern here of games being connected to emotions and love and family and maybe also just like, some learning about life together. Do you think about that? Are those important parts of why we play games and and what influences your game design? Absolutely. Like
1: even going back to our our basic examples that you know that we just spoke about, uh, you know, games in childhood People play. It's one of the very first instincts they have as as living, alive things, as beings. Uh, animals do it. People do it. Uh, and it certainly has been a part of our shared history in building a relationship um, and really like leading bigger lives. Uh, like by playing games, we're getting richer experiences together and with other people. That's pretty cool. It's
0: pretty powerful. Right. So. Tell me about one of your first games. I think it it was Sign. Tell us about that game.
1: Yeah, so Sign is a game uh, that uh, is in line with kind of our our viewpoint as a studio, which is uh, in um, a lot of what we make, we're exploring some question about the world or people through language, Um, how we communicate how it's a reflection of who we are, what we care about, um, and just the real stories of people and culture, identity, all of that. And Sign is a live-action game. It's a LARP um, inspired by a true story. And uh, that is the story of um, the emergence of Nicaraguan sign language. Uh, That um, is an amazing story uh, because it's about the birth of a language in modern times from the hands of children. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and uh, the broad outlines of, of what happens is that uh, you know, in, in, prior to the 1970s, Nicaragua had no formal established form of sign language. If you were deaf, you likely had some signs that you negotiated with your family or folks that you were very close with. And then um, there were two, two schools that were started in Managua, And at these schools, a lot of uh, deaf folks from across the country were brought together to try to learn how to lip read and read and write Spanish because the instructors had no training in any form of sign language. They were just trying to teach them according to methods that had worked for other students. What happened was those students, by interacting with each other at recess, you know, finding just through that innate human need to communicate you know, eventually the teachers couldn't understand what they were saying. And so they got uh, some linguists down to to try to categorize and study what was going on. They had found that what they had was uh, a whole language developed um, that was later documented and formalized and now is the official language. And so we just thought that that was a really important story to highlight in the world. And um, so he we went about uh, making sign, which you know, takes you through a very abstracted uh, kind of journey, from going from not being understood because you're not sharing any tools of communications with the other player, to actually being able to have, you know, fairly in-depth conversations with each other just based on um, you know, these, these gestures and kind of um, little signs that you uh, develop over the course of the game together.
0: I love that it's also such an embodied form of play that you're talking about, embodied play and embodied language. The sort of an intersection between the two. So I, I take it that you learn a number of signs in the game, and that's what you use to start to communicate and play together.
1: Uh, what's interesting about the game is that uh, one of the core mechanics is improvised signs. So the, you aren't actually learning any language. You're, you are creating an improvised sort of shared gesture uh, proto-language, I guess, with the other players. So it is entirely Ooh. specific to the set of people that are playing in that moment in time. But yeah, so so fundamentally sign is not an, uh, a tool to teach any one particular sign language. It's meant to um, support people in ha- having an experience about what an emerging proto-language could be like. It's
2: also something they get to share after the game's over, right? Uh, so mm-hmm. a lot of players will report having these Uh, you know, signs that they've developed and they've gained some level of fluency with over the course of the game, just being like they're inside language with the other players after that and something they get to share and take with them, even though we kind of leave the story uh, that we told in that session. um, You know, we leave that behind, but we keep the language that we made, so.
0: Why do you take language as a topic for your games? I mean, that's not what I think of when I start to think about the games I've played and loved over the years. Sometimes they're quite frivolous, sometimes they're uh, adventure or, or action, but I n- really haven't come across games that were about language. W- why is that such an important topic for you? It's, it's
1: kind of a worldview that maybe we both have based on our backgrounds and lives outside of being game designers. I'm a linguist by training, um, which is, of course, why we know some of these stories. And and it helps in in kind of dealing with the inner mechanics of, uh, you know, gamifying language. Hakan is a cryptographer as well, in terms of uh, his background and training. And there's a, a really amazing overlap in looking at communication language between both of those subjects. And uh, I think that it's always been um, just a part of how we see the world, and kind of the the way, an interesting way of of getting at very deep innate things about people, nature, um, culture, identity uh, that uh, are uh, a little bit around the bend. So you can end up saying interesting things uh, about these basic stories, how we interact um, by talking about language that I think hits harder or uh, also feels different than if you were to just talk about them directly.
2: And one thing just to add to that, fundamentally, when we think of collaborative storytelling together, we're we're talking about creating something together and making connections with the other people at the table. And language is one of the things that I think has been hardwired in us from a very early age as humans to be one of the ways in which you recognize who you share a common bond with, right? Like people who you share common language with, people who you share common idioms, ways of speaking, right? All that's a very real thing that taps right into your brain as to who's your people and who isn't in some ways. And uh, that was one of the ways that we found that we could really help players develop those relationships and connections with each other at the table very, very quickly.
0: You used a word or a term here, Hakan, collaborative storytelling. Not everyone thinks of games in the context of storytelling or collaborative storytelling. Can you unpack that for us?
2: Well, I mean, I think one of the main things that people would say about games in terms of how they distinguish themselves from other mediums is that fundamentally they, they need to be interactive in some way, right? And so you can think of any game as being some collaboration between the player and the creator, if it's a single person game, or the players in the session as together making some narrative together, some session of the game. Now that can be either something that's just like, oh, the, the story of how this, Monopoly game like came to be, right? Like who got Baltic and who got Boardwalk, right? But it could also be something much more intricate and nuanced and emotional, right? And so while all games might be on some spectrum of collaborative narratives, um, the games that we try to make and really the games within this, you know, called indie RPG or sometimes called story gaming spheres are really about telling those, more intense human experiences through
0: the through the medium of gaming when when you say telling do you or do do you mean enabling people to create yes a hundred percent
1: yeah exactly (laughs) discovering the story together
2: yeah like you you give the rules but every group of player is going to realize those rules into a completely different narrative that is special and unique to just the people who are at the table at that given moment in time
0: I love that idea that they not only have a shared history, but a shared language um, that they literally, that like that's the takeaway is that they now have not just the story of the game, but some bond through language or through sign or, or yeah, it's really a, a beautiful thing to take away from a game. Sometimes people will call that
2: artifacts of play, right? Uh, a side effect of the game that's manifest itself somewhere else. That then you get to take on with you afterwards.
1: Um, it's always really neat to see how players react to you know the things that uh, speak to them, and uh, I've seen some great like actual physical artifacts that people will make as sort of remnants uh, of the games that they've played of of our game. There's a mug that uh, has all of the traces of different bits of language and words that kind of came up organically within their sessions that mm-hmm. they share with other people or maybe some dictionary that they've put together. But it becomes a treasure in a little trinket uh, as a part of uh, the game lasting beyond yeah. the session
2: something that blurs the line between the reality that exists in this shared experience together and the the actual reality that you're living in right and that's what those it's artifacts a game do within
1: a game within life I within know, oh where does all, it stop
2: <laughs> games all
0: the way down when you think about designing a game what is that really
2: if if you find out one day, please be sure
0: to tell us because we're still <laughs> figuring it out
2: too. <laughs> because um, really fundamentally, I think that there's either a a mechanic or a story or something that you want the players to experience, but it can be wildly different things in terms of like what actually gives rise to it.
1: I think that the main thing that, uh, you know, though it it is a very rocky path uh, that uh, a thorny path, I guess uh, I would say to plug our, our game studio um, in the end, somehow you've delivered uh, a rule system that enables people to have an experience that is curated by us in some way, but also co-authored by them. And that uh, is an experience that would be difficult or impossible to have outside of the context of this game.
0: I mean, it's fascinating to me because so much of what I think is happening in the world of storytelling today is giving a role to the people formerly known as the audience. And really, that's another way of saying Letting them be players, right? Welcoming them in to co-create, to have uh, a role to play. In fact, I've I've even had a lot of debates with friends about what do we call the people formerly known as the audience in an age of embodied and participatory and interactive storytelling. And uh, some people, like Janet Murray, who in her book *Hamlet on the Holodeck*, wrote uh, this name, this this term called the interactor, is how she defined this and. I've heard many other attempts at it, but I've always preferred player uh, because I think it both suggests the interaction of of a gamer and Shakespeare's uh, reference of players as actors on a stage, all the world's stage and all the people merely players upon it. I really am fascinated by this interaction of play and narrative, and I think Game designers are, in a way, the new authors, right? You you are the storytellers of this embodied, three dimensional, interactive world. I mean, do you do you think when you design a game of yourself as kind of authoring experience?
1: I definitely do, and in fact, co-authoring it as a very basic part too, um, where you define the areas of definition that the rules are providing, and also. Constrained to find, or at least think about the areas of freedom that you're asking of the player. And a great game will provide the tools that enable you then to uh, intuitively have these experiences um, through the rule system. That's a great game that provides the right degrees of freedom and prompting um, to enable you to then co-author another experience with either, uh, you know, other players or uh, within the game itself.
2: Yeah, 100%. It's it's always very interesting, though, in terms of like, what what is the thing that you're actually trying to do, right? Is it actually like having the story that has the most twists and turns, that's the most satisfying narrative? Probably not, like, because a lot of times that's not going to be a fun thing to play at eight o'clock with a bunch of your friends, like after you've had a beer or two, right? Like, there's there's always like other things around the experience that have to go into the equation too, which I always think is a very one of the most difficult parts about being a game designer is like trying to figure out the experience people are actually trying to have (laughs) rather than the one that you think they might want to have.
1: I think it has such interesting residue too for how you interact with other kinds of media like now I'm thinking of looking at a book uh, or a movie and thinking of myself as a player and I'm wondering do you actually uh, interact differently with the book Uh, now I guess in this day and age uh, than maybe you did in the past, or, or given the games are this very basic way that we structure uh, storytelling?
0: Yeah, I mean, since uh, starting the future of storytelling, and my background is in books, as, as you know, and since starting the future of storytelling and thinking about all of these ideas and getting to meet so many fascinating people working in interactive and embodied and immersive and participatory storytelling, we have definitely designed books to be immersive and participatory experiences. I think traditionally you think of it as a fixed linear uh, experience written by the author and the you know the role of the reader is simply to read from start to finish. And we've made them now physically very interactive. Uh, we did a book a few years ago with J.J. Abrams called S. And once you take it out of the slipcase, it's a book from 1949 and Inside, it's filled with postcards and uh, a napkin from the school cafeteria with a hand-drawn map and uh, a, a page from the school newspaper and a dial and letters. And there's a whole three-dimensional tactile experience of reading the novel. There's also handwriting two people have written in the book because they've been commenting on the, a mystery unfold. Anyway, it is literally... A game <laughs> it's, a, it's a participatory journey, and, and we think a lot about that now in the books that we do to try to make them come alive and provide uh, a different kind of tactile agency for the reader. I'm also really interested in just how you, how you decide in effect what board you're going to play this on when you make a game. And I realize that boards might not be part of it at all, right? It could be digital. It could be a deck of cards. You, I, I have a book here that's one of your games. Like, where do you start in terms of the um, medium?
2: I think that it's, it's one of the things where all the mediums afford a different experience that you're starting off with in some way, right? Like, the the two main mediums I think we work in mostly is the like around the table, tabletop type play, right? Which is much more like, you know, a bunch of players around the table, how you would envision like a a group of um folks who are coming together to play a role-playing game after after um, you not have to work or something, I'll gang together to the play. Uh, or LARP, embodied play, right? Where you actually have a space, you're one-to-one in the player, right? Or in the character.
0: Just to interrupt for a second, in case our, our listeners don't know, LARP stands for live action role-playing game.
2: So a lot of times the distinction for us ends up being between the, the two in terms of what board to pick, right? And I'll say they both do give you much, much different experiences. And I think a lot of it ends up being around the type of experience that we think the players want to have in that moment. Um, So in a lot of ways, the type of story you're telling, the emotional kind of closeness that you want the player to have to the fiction and um, other considerations like that really determine for us what the better medium is a lot of times.
0: Well, let's talk about dialect. I love that... This game, which is both, a, comes as a book and, and a deck of cards, I have, the, I have the tangible version, starts with this beautiful quote. And I'm just going to read it. We die, that may be the meaning of life. But we do language, that may be the measure of our lives. And that's a Toni Morrison quote. Why'd you choose that to start this game?
1: Oh, well... I mean, just listen to the quote, <laughs> Toni Morrison. Uh, but, uh, but but I think, uh, yeah, fundamentally, th- this game is exploring a story of, of people um, that you define, and that helps you define, you know, uh, what happens to them, what they care about, how they change, uh, and you do that through language, and language becomes a way to understand, to reflect. To influence even what happens to them, and it becomes a a really intimate record and almost organism um, that is a, a you know a part of a community that you 're defining
2: and in a lot of ways in how the the language is the core of the gameplay in the in the game itself in dialect, I think the the way that the quote also ties language to being the core of what it means to be human was a connection that maybe perhaps too grandiosely, we saw it <laughs> within ourselves and the, the quote itself in some, in some humble way.
0: Well, you can be humble, but this has won a lot of awards, this game. <laughs> um, so I think it's been, it's been sort of really acknowledged for its beauty and, and innovativeness. But I am really touched by the fact that uh, even the subtitle of the, of the game, A Game About Language and How It Dies, that really this is about the loss of language, right? This is inspired by the fact that we lose indigenous languages at some incredible rate, just like species now. Did you do this game in order to draw attention to that cause, to that problem?
1: I think one one outcome of that was to draw attention. And there's two things, I think, that come to mind. One is... There's the experience of language change that we all have as people. And that, you know, a lot of play in the game is really rooted in, you know, what it means to have, you know, an in-group little slang with other students at school or what it means to be someone who was born in a particular place and time. And so you are, you know, you have the, I have the dated speech of the 90s that will leak through uh, what I say and will continue with me. And so we all have those kinds of personal stories of either language identity and change that that we've experienced um, but in a much broader scale, like you were saying, there's this um, a, a growing lack of diversity and a move to monoculture that has happened at a massive scale and continues to happen through the forces of Globalization of the internet of uh, you know the power seated in very specific uh, immovable places and one uh, effect of that is a, a sameness and a and a lack uh, a, a loss of of language diversity in the world and so this game through maybe shining a light at some of the experiences that many individuals may have just through language change or through their own experience as speakers, even if they aren't speakers of an endangered language, is meant to help um, provide some degree of of light or context on what is a, a broader and real phenomenon.
0: And you touch on something that's fundamental to storytelling in general, which is it's kind of a safe way to try on a lot of different hats right? to experience the world from other people's viewpoints. Uh, I'm never going to be a knight in shining armor, but I might enjoy those stories. And it makes me think of one of the guests that we've had on the podcast, Brian McDonald, who uh, wrote a book called The Invisible Ink. And he has as his thesis that uh, stories have evolved and we have evolved as story animals, of people who respond so well to stories uh, because they have survival information in them. Do you think that games... Play a similar role, do you think games have survival information or or what is the role of games
1: yeah i I think games uh as we talked about even at the very beginning uh, you know are are innate to us to play is innate to us uh, and I think it helps us learn it it helps us explore it helps us try things and it helps us become something and uh you know to play is to feel alive. I feel like when it's like what is the opposite of play? to be really static, sad. (laughs) And I mean, even a conversation is a little bit of a, you know, back and forth and like I approach this and I think we all approach this with like a playfulness in it to see where it goes.
2: Yeah. It's, it's all about having a space where you can experiment and and tell stories and experience these different things and functions in a, in a way that's safe and a way that's contained to the session itself, right. Um, Where the consequences are limited, hopefully, <laughs> to, that, to that one uh, moment or you know, session in time. And that's incredibly important, I think, historically and evolutionarily for how people
0: developed. Yeah, I mean, literally, I think about that ancient image of our ancestors sitting around the fire and telling a story of the day's adventures and having that common experience and language and having it be embodied... You're recreating that when you gather a group of friends after work around a table, (laughs) around a a game to create a story together, to create an experience together. That type of game uh, making co-authorship is about connection and finding a common language and bringing people together over things that are meaningful and shared and really might be just what we need in the world today (laughs) is a lot more people playing thorny games. You're <laughs> here,
1: here, yeah.
0: <laughs> Great to be with you both. Play on.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Look forward to seeing you soon and can't wait to be around a table and, and uh, getting to experience some games together at some point. Looking forward to it.
1: Yeah, same.
0: My sincere thanks to Katherine and Hakan for joining me on today's show. You can learn more about their work and purchase any of the games discussed in this episode by visiting the link in the episode's description. Thank you for listening to the FOSS podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, I'd really appreciate if you'd give us a review. FOSS also produces a monthly newsletter filled with valuable information for storytellers of all kinds, as well as our recommendations for cool, immersive stories you can experience in person and online. You can subscribe for free by visiting the link in this episode's description or on our website at fost.org. The FOSS podcast is produced by Melcher Media in collaboration with our talented production partner, Charts and Leisure. I hope we'll see you soon for another deep dive into the world of storytelling. Until then, please be safe, stay strong, and story on